Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And the word of the Lord reads this way, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord, and if you are thankful for it this morning, go ahead and join me in saying thanks be to God. Father, thank you for... A chance to um, to read your word, to hear your word, to speak it. Father, I pray that you would um, be upon our minds and our hearts and give us a, a quickening in our understanding and give, give me the words to communicate it in a way that's helpful to your people. And uh, Father, give us hearts and minds and hands to, to go do, to live, to believe, to, to consider, and to, to live and walk in the way that you've called us to and equipped us to and, and will empower us to do. Father, we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Tis the season of flu and cold, colds, right? Uh, today is the greatest hope I've ever had at sounding like Ben Robbins when I speak. Um, uh, maybe I, I can still go a little bit lower. I mean, I don't know how you do that, but... <clears throat> Uh, there you go. I don't have COVID, at least I don't think. <laughs> Sorry. Um, let's continue. <laughs> uh, here we go. We continue in Hebrews here. Uh, we're just going to continue walking through these verses by God's grace. Uh, there is a real threat. The threat of losing faith uh, is real. Did Christ really die for my sin? Did God really give me Christ's righteousness? And you say, well, of course he did. I believe that. Then let me pose to you, because I think subconsciously we each say that at least if not right now, we do in other days. Now let me pose two questions to two different groups of people. Certainly, everyone might fit somewhere on this continuum. But the first question is this. If you say you believe that, then why do you run from keeping God's law as though it's something dirty? Or two... Now, why do you run to the law or your rule-keeping as though it can save you? If you say you believe and that you live with a sense of losing faith is not that great of reality, then why are those two things or those two groups or those two questions likely to hit most of us? You see, every day comes with the struggle mentioned above, let alone the place and the context in which we live, where there are people around us, maybe even people close to us, pressing us to turn away from faith in Christ to ultimately faith in self. That's really the two options, faith in Christ or faith in self. You see, the Christians, again, to remind us of the context of Hebrews, the Christians hearing uh, this book, we're facing great temptation to turn away from faith in Jesus to faith in self. And that's what you see presented 
this like Christ versus Moses. Christ and Moses. This, will you turn to faith in Moses, and we're going to define that again this morning, or faith in Christ. Turn from faith that Jesus paid the penalty of your sin. Turn from faith that Jesus took the sting of death. Turn from faith that they are now in God's family because of that. And exchange all of that and more for faith in self. Namely, faith in self defined as, I can prove my own righteousness before God. I can somehow do enough good to be right with God. And how were they going to do this? They were going to do this, the, 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 the hearers of this book in the first century would have been saying, well, how? Well, it's by keeping God's laws and by keeping our man-made laws on top of God's laws. If we can do that, then we can prove ourselves, we can earn our righteousness and be right before God. That same threat is very real in our day too. To turn from faith in Jesus, the one and only who can make us right before God and exchange it for faith in self. And how? Well, by either keeping God's laws or keeping our own man-made laws. Our own man-made laws might be some examples here, like make sure you get the pronouns right, and that will save you. Or maybe a little closer to home, make sure your kids get this particular kind of life experience. That will save you. Or make sure you meet this person's emotional expectations, and that will save you. Or make sure you don't follow the Old Testament laws too closely. You wouldn't want to be a legalist. That will save you. Or make sure you feel good about Jesus, even after the very words I'm saying right now. And that will save you. Make sure you don't sound too legalistic. Maybe that will save you. But not just man-made laws, but even by keeping God's laws. If I just check off all the boxes of what God expects of me, clearly from his word, then maybe that will save you. The temptation for us to use the language and the words of Hebrews 3 is to stop considering Christ, to stop holding fast to Christ, and instead exchange it for considering self, holding fast to self, faith in self. The threat is real. The threat is real for all of us, no matter how long you've been following Christ. The threat is real. Now, don't I want you to miss something that's interesting here at the beginning of this passage. Don't miss the indicative. So an imperative is something that you should go do. An indicative is something that is true of you. Don't miss the indicative here. The author is telling these people the imperative is to hold fast to consider Jesus. But who are these people that he's telling to consider Jesus to hold fast? They're Christians. These are Christians. He's not telling people outside of Christianity to hold fast. I mean, they need, to, they, they need to submit to Christ initially. But these are people who have already done that. They've already placed faith in Christ. He calls them holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. The people he's telling to hold fast are people who have been marked as holy because Christ took their sin. These are people whose final and eternal place is heavenly because they were made siblings to Christ. <clears throat> that's true of these people. That's the reality of these people. And yet, it's interesting, though, because he's telling them to hold fast. Those who are already identified as recipients of Christ's gracious work are told to make Jesus the conscious object of their faith. I think this quote, this, this thought here, I think it's interesting, or maybe at least gives us the temptation to just gloss over this fact, because I think we've relegated faith to maybe a few different things. Maybe we've relegated faith to just that moment I got saved. So when I think about faith, I just think about the moment that, that I began believing in Christ, or maybe we've relegated faith to happy thoughts like Peter Pan. And that's pretty much the way faith is relegated in our culture today. It's just, how can I have enough hopefulness to make it through my day? That's kind of what faith is. So for some people, that means they just need more coffee and they can have more faith. For others, 
Um, I don't know what their other option is. It's just coffee. Uh, or maybe three, you grew up where in a context, a church context, where faith should never be doubted. You're almost like shamed if, if you doubt your faith. <clears throat> but faith is an active, ongoing reality that if it is not tended to, if it's not guarded, if it isn't fed, it will die. Let me say that again. <clears throat> faith is an active, ongoing reality that if it is not tended to like a garden, if it is not worked like a muscle, it will die. Now, some of us don't like to be told to hold fast. It feels legalistic. It feels burdensome. It doesn't feel encouraging. What do you mean, it will die? Listen, remember, these are people that he's writing to that are suffering from persecution. And the author sees fit to tell them to do this. Now, I have to ask the question, why wouldn't it be encouraging? Why would there be the chance of some of us not being encouraged in the midst of the temptation to lose faith, to be reminded, to consider Jesus, to hold fast to our confession? I propose that it might feel this way to you because you indeed are legalistic yourself, and the call to hold fast is exposing that you're trusting in yourself for salvation and not Christ. And so what's happening is it's making you feel weak. It makes you feel incapable. And there's no room for that when you live with God like you can prove yourself. Now you can do this in two different ways. You can do this with your head held high, full of confidence. Like, I'm good and don't you challenge my faith because I'm, I'm good at holding fast. But you can also do this in a more sneaky way where it looks pious, where you do it with your head held low, seemingly full of de depression and discouragement. That's a little harder to see that that is still hope in self because it seems pious and humble. But the head held low is oftentimes an indicator in, of that of pride in believing that you can hold fast apart from God and on your own. And so when someone comes along and says, hold fast, and you're like, ah, well, how do I, 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 I can't do that, and now, now you're, you're, you're pressing in on me, you're expecting on me, and, and, and why, why discouraged in that moment? Why? Because your hope ultimately in that moment is of you holding fast, that you can do it. And that's just pride. It's Pride. The reality is, is when he tells us to hold fast, to consider, it should conjure up in us a lack of self-sufficiency. And it should push us to look beyond ourselves. See, the threat is real for real Christians. That's why the author says to us, if I could put it in other words, make Jesus the conscious object of your faith. Make Jesus the conscious object object of your faith. I'm going to come back to that many times today. Make Jesus the conscious object of your faith. To actively decide to believe. To actually decide. To actually set your mind upon the truth of Christ and say, that I will believe. Some of us think that this faith thing is some other world experience or it's some emotional explosion or it's something I just sit around and wait for or it's something I'm purely at the mercy of life for and just sitting around waiting for hope and faith. But what does he say in Hebrews 3.1? Therefore, so in light of everything Pastor Jeff said last week, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The author is saying to them, will your belief to be settled upon Jesus and will your belief to stay there? 
Say no to the wrong belief. Pick up your thoughts and set them on the right belief. When the thought of unbelief or wrong belief enters your mind, tell it to go to hell. Don't consider these things. Listen, the pervading thought in our culture is this. Whatever you're feeling inside, thinking inside, you just need to let that have full expression. You are most morally right when you act most congruent with the way you feel and think inside. That is the pervading philosophy and belief of our culture. That's where critical race theory comes from and all the above. Just let it go. Let it go. I can't hold it back anymore. And so we've created an entire world with weak and pathetic minds that have no more control over what they do with their thoughts and emotions than they do over the weather. But the author of Hebrews is assuming that humans have been given the ability to consider this. And especially Christians, the ability to pick up their thoughts, take them out of the dumpster, and put them on Christ. Consider Jesus. Hold fast to your confession. What else does that mean? Take your thoughts that are wrong and say no. And the thoughts that are right, say yes. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Look beyond yourself. Place your thoughts upon him and what he has done Listen, did God really say that you and I are utterly dependent on him for everything? Yes, he did. Period. Actively, consciously, persistently place your thoughts and your trust upon Jesus. That's going to involve the classic putting on and putting off, right? Tell the wrong thoughts to go to hell. Tell the right thoughts, make yourself at home. All that we learned last week, the one who overcame death, the one who took our wrath, consider him persistently, consistently, stubbornly, tenaciously, doggedly, steadfastly. Place your mind upon him. And if none of those adverbs computed, place your mind upon him all the time. Turn to him all the time. And be sure as you do to consider all of Christ for all of life, not just the portions of Christ we prefer. Unfortunately, I think the average evangelical church has reduced Jesus to just he died for your sins. And as crucial as that is, there is much more to the picture worth considering. Considering Jesus is more like admiring a gallery wall and less like watching paint dry. If you've ever been to my house, we have this wall of art and pictures and icons. Every picture is important. Every picture represents something that is amazing to our family. Every picture represents something our family even delights in. You can see a little mountain bike is an icon up on our gallery wall. and Enjoy mountain biking when it's warmer, that is. It's a wall with meaningful but seemingly random pictures sometimes that bring beauty and a certain, hear me, aroma to the room, a certain culture to our house. Sarah and I, as many of you know, are planning to move to a farm at the end of the month. Um, I bought a couple cows this past week. Never thought I would do that. But uh, before going to bed last Sunday, Sarah said, and I didn't ask her for permission for this, but I'm going to quote her anyways. I'm going to leave the gallery wall up until the last minute. I said, why? She says, because once I take it down, our current home will no longer feel like home. I agree. I agreed with her. I agree with her now. In the midst of all the boxes and all the packing tape, in the midst of many items going into the trash, thank God, it feels, it still feels like home, 
when we sit in our living room underneath that wall. As you consider Jesus, it's not like watching paint dry, but like a gallery wall. When you consider Jesus, it's like that. I think this is in part at least part of the reason why many of our faith in this room is so weak and so easily lost. Because building your faith or considering Jesus or holding fast to Christ is to you more like watching paint dry than the beautiful and powerful and glorious reality of a wall filled with eternal truths that build and inspire and encourage and persevere your faith. Now, all of our gallery walls will look different, and that's okay. That's good. There should be lots of overlap, but some of us have some pictures of Jesus up there, but we don't really believe any of it. We don't actually have faith in it. We've just kind of put pictures of that, but some of us have just a few pictures. Some of us have lots of pictures. Some of us have wrong pictures that need taken down. We should all be adding beautiful pictures, staunch, powerful pictures to that wall all the time. The more you add, the more amazing and glorious the wall becomes. The more you consider this Christ truly and fully, the more beautiful and powerful the wall becomes, the more the aroma strengthens in your home and in your life, in your speech and in your conduct. That's one of the reasons You should hang with godly friends, listen to them, why you should lead your family and family worship, why you should be in your Bible and praying, why you should follow your godly leaders, so that we are reminded to consider Jesus. That's what the author is doing here. So he says, consider Jesus, and he doesn't stop at the picture of Jesus dying on a cross. He tells us to hang a couple more pictures of Jesus. Jesus is the greatest apostle and the highest of high priests. He says, put that picture on your wall. The greatest apostle and high priest, put it on your wall. Hebrews 3, 2 through 4. It says, therefore, holy brothers who... You who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus. He says this, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, wait, my goodness, um, where am I at? For Jesus, verse three, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So we're going we're gonna to rest in these few verses. So if you have your Bibles, just keep them right there. We're going to bounce in around here for a little while. Apostle, high priest. What does he mean? What are those words? What's going on? Apostle. An apostle is one who is sent to represent God before men, to speak and act on God's behalf. High priest. This is one who represents men before God and offers a sacrifice for their sins. So see what the picture here is. It's the representation of God, uh, for God and a representative of man. So Jesus is both that. Consider Jesus, the representative of God and the representative of man. But notice in the passage, he talks first about Moses. Moses was amazing. I don't know if you know that, but even in this context, Moses is amazing. He was the greatest prophet of all of Judaism. He told God's words to God's people faithfully, represented God faithfully. Not perfectly, but faithfully. He was the greatest priest in all of Judaism. He continually, year after year, faithfully represented the people of God as their high priest, offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And according to this passage... And we'll see this further in Hebrews as we go. Moses shares the greatest compliment ever given to a man. Faithful. Indeed, he shares this compliment, according to this passage, with Jesus. Both were faithful. Verse 2. Who appointed him 
just as Moses also was, a faith, was faithful in all of God's house. When we sing that song, uh, True and Better Adam, uh, that's a, a hit around here, and, and it sh- as it should be. When we're singing that, that Christ is the true and better Moses, you should have in your mind that Moses was amazing. It's not Jesus was just better to some moron. He's better, better than Moses, who is amazing. That's when we say that Moses was a Christ type. It means he is a type of Christ. He is a, a foreshadow. He's a picture of the Christ that is to come. Christ is the anti-type because he's the real thing. Moses is the type. We need to be reminded again that Moses was the amazing prophet and high priest. But what we're told here is not that Moses was bad and what Moses did was bad and that Jesus was awesome, but that Moses was awesome and Jesus is better. That's the comparison. Now, that's, that's important for where we're going. you got to keep that in your mind. It's not a Moses and everything he did is bad. Jesus and everything he did is good. So i got to be in that camp. That's not the picture being painted here by the book of Hebrews. Moses was amazing. Next sub-point, Jesus is superior. Jesus is the greatest representative of God. In fact, Colossians tells us that he was the exact imprint of God, the exact image of God. To know Jesus is to know God. And Jesus lived, as we know, without sin, showing us the full character of God. Jesus was the greatest representative of man. So this, again, apostle and high priest. The greatest representative for man. He lived as a man, died as a man, but did so without any sin, unlike all the other high priests, such that he could walk with God, into God's presence and pay for our sins, and such that death could not hold him in the grave. What's, what separates him from Moses as a high priest? But this passage, though, I mean, those are general truths that we know to be true about Moses and Jesus, but, but particularly in this passage, This passage gives a very specific reason for why Moses is awesome, but Jesus is better. Let me explain. Moses worked in the house, and don't miss it, was praised for it. Get that? Moses worked in the house and was praised for it. But God, through Jesus, who is his son over the house, is the builder of it. That's the distinction. God builds the house. Jesus is the son over the house who built it. Moses is the one working in the house. The work he did is awesome. Jesus' work is worthy of more honor. Jesus is better because he's the one who owns the house. He's the one who is actually building the house. He's the architect and the owner and the general contractor. As Moses labored inside the house, it was pointing forward to Christ, the builder of the house. Typically, uh, when you have a house built, a physical house built, there is a, a builder or a general contractor who oversees all the project. And then that, that general contractor determines what's next. And they hire what's called subcontractors. The electrical guys, the plumbing guys, the cement guys, the foundation guys, the framing guys, all those things. Those are all subcontractors. Those are all people working in the house while the contractor is building the house, the general contractor. Moses is awesome because he worked in God's house. Jesus is superior because he's the one building the house. He's the son over the house. So here's... Another admonition to us, go work in the house. Go work in the house. I'm going to define this. It's usually what I do, give you a thought, and then you look at me confused, and then we, we talk about it, okay? Go work in the house. That's usually after saying it three different ways, six different times. If you can do the math on that, you should have laughed. Hebrews 3, 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Listen to those, that, that commendation there. 
to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So Moses was considered faithful for working in the house. And we should therefore do the same. If that's considered faithful, then we should go do likewise. We should work in the house. Now let's talk about what does it mean to work in the house. First of all, the house. What's the house? The house is the people of God. The house is the people of God. That's where God dwells. That's why I don't like calling this building that we're sitting in a sanctuary. Because God only dwells in this room so long as there are a person in this room who is God's house physically themselves where God is dwelling. So when all of us leave and there's nothing but mice, yes, there's mice here, and other random bugs and a squirrel that lives in that window, (laughs) God's not here. I mean, other than the fact that he's omnipresent, but he's not here in the sense of dwelling here. This is not the sanctuary. Darn it, don't say sanctuary. It's an auditorium, a gathering place, meeting hall. I don't care what you call it. You're the sanctuary. You're the house of God. You won't be disciplined if you call it a sanctuary. You'll get the stink eye from me. I even have to correct some elders sometimes. Come on. We're the house of God. Moses was working on the house of God, meaning the people of God, among whom God was dwelling. Listen, that's why the Old Testament laws. That's why the journey through the wilderness. That's why Moses got angry at the golden calf after he descended from Mount Sinai. That's why Moses stood up to Pharaoh. He was working on God's house. Why? So that God's glory would fill the earth via God's house. Now remember the context, again, of Hebrews, a bunch of Christians being tempted to turn back to Moses. But what about Moses were they being tempted to turn back to? And that's where we get sticky here. That's where it gets confusing because if we don't capture, if we don't walk into this, don't turn back to Moses, and we don't understand what about Moses that we shouldn't turn back to, what's being represented, then we will throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. And that's where we get the fancy term for antinomians. That's people who are anti-law, people that are anti-rules and regulations. And that's not what Hebrews is after here. So as you work in the house, don't fall backwards. But what are we not to fall backwards to? Let me walk you through that question. So what are we not to fall back? What is it about Moses that we're not to fall back to? And remember, the key point to keep in mind is working as a servant in God's house, for which Moses is called faithful, was him keeping God's law. Right? He's faithful as he's working in the house. Listen, the problem isn't the law. The problem isn't a temptation to keep rules. Some of us actually think, rules, run! But look at the passage Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a what? Servant. What do you mean by that? A servant. What do you think is meant? Moses kept the rules and was called faithful for it. And his faithfulness is being held up with Christ. Now it's not equal to Christ's, right? There's a distinction here. But that's what it means to work in the house, is to keep God's laws, to live God's ways. So if Moses keeps the laws and is considered faithful for doing so, then the problem's not the law. So then what is the problem? Go back to Hebrews 3, 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Remember, these The hearers of this originally are being tempted again to turn back. But look, look what the author said in that verse. The author does not say, when tempted to turn to your self-righteousness, when tempted to, to turn to proving yourself before God, the author does not say, avoid expectations. Avoid the law. That's not what he says. 
He doesn't say consider toning down the language on sin or consider toning down the talk about all those laws or consider doing a little less work in the house of God. You know, I'm just doing a little too much. Starting to prove myself a little too much, so consider not doing those things. No, what's he say? He doesn't say stop doing those things. He says consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. The problem isn't the law or us living by the law. It isn't a rules problem. It's a considering problem. And that's what he's telling us not to turn back to. It's a considering problem. It's a faith problem. The problem is the object of our faith while keeping or not keeping the law. That's the problem. See, it's not... If you don't separate those two out, then you will throw out rules and all of that together. And that leads to another problem. The problem is the object of our faith while keeping or not keeping the law. What is the conscious object of Moses' faith? Moses had faith that while working hard in the house, that it was God who was building the house. Moses' faith was not in his keeping the law, but he kept the law because he had faith that it was God who was doing the work. It was God who was building. He had faith that it was God who was working, that all of his work was wrapped up in God. See, listen, those two separate groups, those who are would not consider themselves Christians, believe that they can build the house and that they can save themselves. They can both work in the house and be the builder of the house and they can get all the glory for the house. Those who are supposedly Christians but so afraid of legalism believe if they just stay away from building the house that they can be saved. Anything that feels like a rule, I just stay away from those things, then that means I'm really claiming grace. I hope you see the folly and the mistake there. We work in the house while believing that Christ is the builder of the house. What freedom there is then when we work. We work, but we work in faith that Christ is the one doing the work. Right? Work out your faith to to completion, but, but he will finish the work, Philippians tells us. You work hard, but you always work hard with faith that God is the one building that house. The difference, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. That's awesome. The passage is telling us that's a good thing. But Jesus is the builder of the house. Here's what this means. Moses' ministry of keeping the law, was not in conflict with Christ's ministry of fulfilling the law. Let me say that again. You should write that one down. Moses' ministry of keeping the law was not in conflict with Christ's ministry of fulfilling the law. But Moses was a servant whose labor was a part of Christ's ultimate work and labor. Moses' ministry of keeping the law was not in conflict with Christ's ministry of fulfilling the law. Listen, our work can be in conflict with Christ's work. When it's in conflict with Christ's work, when we point to that work as that which should save us and make us right before God. But when we point to that work as an outworking of Christ's work as the builder, then they're not in conflict with each other. Our work in keeping the law doesn't have to be at odds with salvation by grace alone. Our working out our faith, our working to keep God's ways don't have to be in conflict with Christ's work. How? It's by what we consider. Back to that word. What are you considering when you are working in the house? By what hope do you boast in when you're working in the house? By, to what are you holding fast when you work in the house? What do you point to when you're working in the house? Do you do these works 
so you can hold fast to your works as proof? Do you do these works or do you do these works while holding fast to Christ's works? Are you saying, hey, I want you all, God, God, I want you to consider my works. See these awesome things that I've done? Maybe the way uh, to help you think about when you're, le- I, uh, maybe, maybe back up, I'm getting off script here, but hang with me. None of us are probably, most of us are not going to practically say, after doing a good work, working in the house, are going to say, hey God, ha look at what I just did. Most of us are not going to do that. But how about when you do that good work and you don't feel appreciated for it? Or you do that good work and you don't think you're recognized for that good work. Or you do that good work and you feel real good about yourself afterwards. Or you do that good work and you still don't feel like you've done enough. Those, cons- those test questions and more would lead you to, should lead you to assess that what you're saying while doing those works most is consider me. Consider me. Consider what I've done. Consider my works. And upon those works, you, God, should be good with me. Instead of saying, while you do those good works, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. I get to do this work. Consider Jesus. I don't need recognition. Jesus has all the recognition. He deserves it all. I don't, I don't have to walk away from this having done enough so that I can, quote, feel saved because I'm considering Jesus and I can objectively know that he did enough for me to be saved. But the legalist's temptation, the temptation for us is to pit Moses against Jesus It's to pit the Old Testament against Jesus or law versus grace. And so many of us fall into two camps here. First of all, that feels legalistic. Run. And then this person lives a lazy, pathetic, supposedly Christian life, contributing nothing but carbon dioxide and more work for others to do in God's house. Or two, you embrace legalism and then you live a life, fear, uh, live a life in the fear of death because you're trying to prove yourself, doing other religious duty so that you can point to your works while enslaving others to your legalism as well. If we put these two things against each other, but here's the picture, again, the picture. Working in the house is faithful if you understand that it is Jesus who builds the house. It's not rocket science. Conceptually, it's easy. What's hard is picking your thoughts up out of the wrong place, saying, consider me, and put them in the right place and say, consider Jesus. That's the hard part. Conceptually, it's easy. Physically, that's hard. That's why we walk in repentance and faith. That's what it means to repent for the thoughts being in the gutter and ask for faith for the thoughts to be in the right place. Let me put that in different terms. God, forgive me. Please, for telling myself and others to consider me. God, give me the faith to consider Jesus. The, the thing, is, we, we want everything to come easy to us. Listen, you probably should be doing that 100 times a day. Listen, Moses, look at Moses' life. He worked and worked and worked. He kept all the duties required of him. I don't mean that in a sinless way, but but in in an exemplary way. I think most evangelical Christians would probably call Moses a legalist. Matter of fact, most of them do. But Moses is referred to here as a faithful worker inside the house of God. Hebrews 3.2, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Why? Because Moses knew that Jesus was the builder of the house, practically. Moses didn't run from the duties 
in order to embrace some soft, accommodating Christianity. Two, Moses didn't do the duties and point to them for justification, right? So there's two things. He didn't run from the duties. He does the duties, but he doesn't point to the duties as his justification. Moses worked and worked and worked inside the house while boasting that his hope was in God. His hope was in escaping eternal death and punishment and punishment was in God. Moses worked and worked inside the house knowing that it was Jesus, although he did not know him by name, but he knew him by office, was the one who was building the house. You see, our work done in faith unto Christ is work that is a part of Christ's ultimate work. So how is our work not adding to our salvation, but is a part of God's ultimate work, and is not us earning our salvation? How does that fit together? Listen, our work doesn't add to His work when we work by faith, because when we work by faith, it is Christ's work in us. And so he gets the honor and the credit for that work. So here's the deal. Do all of your religious duties. They're not dirty. But do them in faith. How do you do that? Faith that they can't save you, but Jesus' works did. And then faith that these works are a part of Christ's ultimate work of building his house. Here's how Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 3.3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. See, the builder of the house deserves more honor than the house and the workers in the house for that matter worth more honor than the house and more honor than the workers. That's the point in the comparison between him and Moses. He's not saying there's no honor in what Moses did. What he's saying is there's more honor in Christ. That means there's honor in what Moses did, but there's more honor in Christ. Are you working? Here's my question. Are you working in God's house? Or I'm sorry, that's a statement. As you are working in God's house, you work knowing that it's a part of Christ's building. Now, most of the time, when we get discouraged working in the house, it's because we've forgotten that it's Christ who is responsible for the building. And listen, again, the concept's not hard. If you've been unfaithful in working, I mean, not working hard, repent and trust that Jesus is the one building the house. If you've been working hard, but with faith in your working, pointing to it, then repent and place your faith in Christ and keep working. And do that over and over and over again until you put that sin to death. When we work in his house, we're pointing ahead just as the labors of Moses pointed ahead. What's it pointing ahead to? To the completion of Christ's work. It's pointing ahead to when his building of the house is done. When all of his saints look like him. When all of his children have grown into maturity like Christ. So when we work in the house, by faith, we work in the house saying, when I lay this brick, when I have this conversation, when I say this prayer, when I read my Bible, when I have coffee with this person to give them an exhortation, when I preach this word, when I sing this song, when I do this, I am building a house that is by faith will be completed by Jesus on the day that he takes us all home and we see his face. The problem is, is that we do all those works and then we point to them and say, consider me. That's the problem. Moses isn't saying, consider me. He's saying, consider my God. Now, don't miss this. The house gets honor too. It doesn't say that the house is stupid and God, the builder, gets all the honor it says God gets more. All the honor is God's, but he shares that. It's his work in us. We get to share in that honor. The house is still honorable. So what's it mean to work in the house? Very practically. 
Go build God's kingdom in all the ways that are faithful to God's character expressed in Jesus and his law. Go build his kingdom. Go build households that reflect God's character. Go build businesses that reflect God's character. Go build governments that reflect God's character and so on. Now to verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Here's my last point. Always return to the gallery wall. Always. Always. Always return to the gallery wall. I'm told that in the book Strangely Bright by uh, uh, Joe Rigney, uh, he, he would encourage us to say, like, there are times when you're going to be staring right at the gallery wall. But the gallery wall should, he doesn't use the word gallery wall, that's my word. But it's time that you're fixed on Christ, your eyes are, you're, you're like you're reading your Bible, like you're staring at the gallery wall. You can't do that all day long. Like you can't sit and read your Bible all day long, right? I mean, that's, that's a little hard to do. Some of us, we've got to move on to other tasks for the day. But the gallery wall should always be in our peripheral. It should be always in the peripheral of our vision. It should always be that thought that's right next to the primary thought that we're working on. It should always be in our, in our vision. But he says here, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast. And at this moment, cue all the tension. This is where some of us get uncomfortable really quick, especially for those who like to throw the term legalist around like it's parade candy. Hebrews is full of exhortations and conditional statements, full of them. If you do A, then B will happen. God is not mocked. His conditional statements come true. God doesn't just throw out fluffy words that mean nothing. He did literally say, we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Yes, there is an if in there. Literally, we are his house, if You continue to believe that Jesus is the righteousness you need and the payment for your sin that you need in order to be right with God. Yes, he said, if you hold fast to that. Now, why would he say that if it wasn't really true that you could let go? In part, because he intends to motivate you to hold on. He's saying this really is a danger. Now, we're going to have plenty of time, because I know some of you are like, oh, man, well, can I lose my salvation? And those are quite, I, 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 Hang on. We'll get there in the next few weeks, all right? So I'm not going to get into, like, that piece there. So if that's in your mind, just let it resonate for a little bit, all right? Jesus will hold you fast, okay? But he intends to motivate you, to push you. Listen, exhortations and conditional statements often make us feel weak, or scared, and to some extent they should. It's okay right now if you're like, oh man, well, could I let go of God? It's okay if there's a measure of fear and then discomfort. That's okay. Remember, the author here isn't writing to people who are in happy jolly land. He's writing to those who are being persecuted. Listen, when you hear that in exhortation, And if it inspires discouragement, then I imagine what's happening is your faith is misplaced. But if you hear, hold fast, and you're invigorated to more faith, to more dependence on God, then I would encourage you that your faith is likely alive and well. Holding fast and earning salvation is not the same thing. Holding fast and earning our standing before God is not the same thing. And I think that's why we get, we get hung up here. So if you're telling me to hold fast, isn't that kind of like me just kind of earning my salvation? I don't, I don't think this is the same thing. Trusting in Jesus and not fearing death because God's wrath for me is no more versus is not the same as failing to maintain faith 
and fearing that my faith isn't real or could fade away. Those are not the same thing. You should fear that you might not persevere in the faith. That's really one of the main points of Hebrews. We'll hit it again and again, multiple times. We think, if I'm working hard to have faith and bolster faith, then I must be working hard to earn my salvation instead of leaning on Jesus. But it's a good and necessary thing to work hard to maintain faith in what? The work of Jesus and his work alone. That's what Hebrews is telling us. We have to work hard at that. We have to hold fast to that. Remember all those adverbs I gave you before. That's what Hebrews is telling us. The object of your faith is that of Jesus Christ. Don't fear your banishment from God. I don't have to fear death. But Hebrews is telling us to hold fast to that. To boast in that. That's our confession. To hold fast to our confession. To consider that. So how do we hold fast? By making Jesus the conscious object of our faith. And that's not a one-time event. Listen, you could have been a Christian for 50 years, and this is still going to be a multi-daily event. It's still going to require you between breakfast and lunch, probably five times, to hold fast, because you're going to be tempted to say, consider me. You'll be tempted to make yourself the object of your faith. Something you have to actually do. It's a call to action. And listen to me. Your pastors can't take you back to the wall. We can hand you pictures, but you have to put them on the wall. And you have to consider them later today, tomorrow morning, at lunch. That's on you. In more practical terms, we hold fast by putting more pictures of Jesus on the gallery wall and then standing back in amazement. By continually returning to the wall day after day after day. When your faith is under fire, you have to return to the wall over and over and over again. When your faith is not under fire, then you better be putting as many pictures up on the wall as you can because fire's coming. You see, when you see, listen to me here, when you see God's saving work, up on that wall, when you see that your treasure is safe in heaven, when you see that your works can be a part of the master's building plan, it emboldens faith. It strengthens faith. Why? Because sight strengthens faith. Sight strengthens hope. When you see objectively spelled out for you here, and you've just put this up on the wall to look at it, when you see it there, you see that there's no fear in death. It strengthens your faith. When you see that these troubles around us will give way to victory because our builder is supreme and sovereign over it all, it strengthens your faith. When you see that your work is a part of something eternal, whether it's swinging a hammer or it's having coffee with a hurting friend or it's sharing the gospel with your lost coworker, it strengthens your faith. But you have to choose to physically keep putting pictures on the wall. We have to choose each day, each moment to return to admire the wall. And in Rigney's words, we have to always keep the wall in our peripheral vision as we go throughout our days. Let's pray. Father, help us to stop considering ourselves, meaning to stop placing our faith in our works and to place them in Jesus, to pick them up, to say, no, that is not where my faith belongs. It belongs in Jesus. And then 20 seconds later, when our faith moves back towards self, help us to say no again and ask us to have faith or help us to have faith, to ask you to help us with faith, to consider Jesus 
and three minutes when we do it again. Forgive us for placing our faith in ourselves and help us to place our faith in you and the work of your son Jesus on behalf of us. Father, I thank you that your grace is sufficient, that your works were enough. Father, that, that we, where we could not do enough good, we cannot earn our way to you, that Jesus is the great high priest, and he represents us well by your standards, not ours, and has made us right before your throne. And Father, thank you that the work we do in faith, that Jesus is the one building the house and using these works, that those works are good and purposeful and will last in eternity. Whether that's, again, swinging a hammer or having coffee with a friend or running a business or parenting a child. Father, that if we do those works by faith, building your house, that they are worthy of honor as we seek and serve and do those in the name of Christ who is worthy of more honor. I ask that you would help your people to do this. Help me to do this. Father, for it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.